0: In today's podcast, we feature audio from our Expo 2020 panel series. In this episode, Dave Rosenberg from Locked On Leadership hosts a workshop about how to eliminate your competition and own your marketplace.
1: Welcome. My name is Dave Rosenberg. My company is Locked On Leadership, and you are at Don't Paint Yourself Into a Corner, How to Eliminate Your Competition and Own Your Marketplace. Is everybody where they want to be? somebody think I'm something else? Good, good. So, a little bit about me before we get started. Former Naval Flight Officer, how many people saw a Top Gun? Great, I was Goose, but I lived. I've got about uh, 300 traps uh, on the uh, Nimitz and the Independence. Uh, got out of service in 1993, started my first business then. It was called National Wedding Registry. Unfortunately, seven to nine months later, The big boys solved the problem I was solving, and my first business failed. But during that time, I fell in love with telecommunications. I have a degree in engineering, and I decided I wanted to paint the yellow line down the middle of the information highway. So I went into telecommunications. I was a top salesperson for a couple companies, got promoted to VP of operations, and decided I could sell it, I could install it, may as well do it myself. So I started my second company, Delta V Communication, we were a low voltage contractor, did telecommunication equipment sales, installation and service, sold that in 2009, went on to run San Diego Kitchen and Bath, the kitchen and bath remodeling contractor. Uh, got out of that business about a year later and went into moving and storage, so uh, ran a good-sized moving company. A friend of mine was the owner of in San Diego called Priority Moving. That got sold in 2013. The end of the year, it was actually 1231. 13 was when it closed, and I, of course, then had to recreate myself one more time. So you're looking at Dave 6.0. But I've been out for a while, so all the bugs that come with major releases have been all ironed out by now. And so now what I do is I work with contractors and people in the trades, helping them do uh, with their business as a business coach. In addition to that, I do leadership consulting, speaking, and I have a new book out, Locked On Leadership, which is uh, the Tactical Business Guide to Creating a Culture of Courage, Consistency, and Caring. Now, we're not going to be talking about this book today except for one element, and this is up here for another very strategic reason we'll talk about in a minute. I imagine you're all sitting here Because you have too much competition. Is anybody here because they have not enough competition? Nobody? Bueller? Okay. So why do you have competition? How come you have competition? Come on. This is interactive, guys. I'm gonna board stuff out of myself if I have to get up here and lecture. Because there's money there? Yeah. So how do we eliminate our competition? How do we make sure, right? And this is not the Sopranos, okay? You can't pay me to do that. Not gonna work. They put you away for a long time if you do that. So let's take a look at companies that have successfully done that. Who has eliminated their competition? How about this guy? Do they have any real competition? Not anymore. You think they had competition once upon a time? Who was our competition when they started? Okay. What was the first thing Amazon did? Sold books. Sold books. They sold books in a marketplace that was huge with books. Borders books, um, uh, uh, Barnes and Nobles. I can't remember. There was a ton of major chains. In fact, all the small indies were going out of business, being driven. What was that movie with Tom Hanks? Um, uh, uh, No, You've Got Mail. You've Got Mail. Right? Because... She, he was big books guy and she was an independent and, and they fell in love and I've actually never seen a movie because that stuff doesn't do anything for me. But anyway, Jeff Bezos, working out of his garage, figured out how to eliminate his competition. How about these guys here, Domino's. Anyone know Domino's story? So I see a lot of um, silverbacks in the room, okay? People like me, where you've been around for a year or two. What was Domino's things when they first started? Anybody remember? What's that? 30 minute delivery, right. We will have your pizza delivered in 30 minute or? It's free. Now, what was the pizza market like? Now, I'm from Philadelphia, so we know pizza. Any New Yorkers or Chicagoans here? You don't know anything about pizza, okay? What was the pizza market like well, Domino's. Uh, it was 1973, right? in Philly. Every corner. I literally grew up working in a pizza place. It wasn't a family or anything. It was, my dad was a school teacher, and during one of the major strikes, he got a job there, and then that became the family thing. We started delivering, and then we started working there, and you know, we were friends with the owners, and I mean, but every corner had a pizza joint. How does a chain place like Domino's, not just? Is it because they have great pizza? How many people here think Domino's is great pizza? Come, on. somebody. Great, okay. So you're not a foodie, um, right? It's it's good. It's okay. It does in a pinch. I live in a small town out in San Diego County, but not in San Diego itself, where you literally have like 10,000 people and 30,000 horses. Okay, it's 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 rural, so we have Domino's and pizza's Hut. That's it. So. Yeah, it does in a pinch, but, and they deliver. Yeah, so, but they did it by carving out a niche for themselves that nobody else did. We'll talk about that what that was in a second. And then, here's our newest player, right? It's a hamburger company, isn't it? You guys don't know who Beyond Meat is? Who wants to help, help out our people? Yeah, this is, so this is the meatless burger. Meat. is a lot of things, but the only thing I've ever had is a burger. And I gotta tell you, I couldn't tell the difference. By the way, nutritionally, you can't tell the difference either. I mean, if, unless you believe, and I'm not saying it's not the case, but if you believe that plant is generally better than meat, then it's nutritionally better. But if you just look at the numbers on the back of the package, they are virtually identical. Same caloric content, same fat content, just a different type of fat, but they taste fantastic. So they've carved out this niche of people who are only interested in plant-based diets. I actually had dinner Monday night with a speaker, a guy by the name of Dan Burris, he's around, he's a futurist, uh, been around for 35 years, and he eats nothing but plant-based diet. And he talks about. He, he told me a story, he said, the world's strongest man, I don't know this to be a fact, but this is third-hand information, so take it forward, he said the world's strongest man got big eating plant-based diets. He's like, huge like an ox, and somebody once said to him, how can you get so strong and he says, I eat what oxes eat, you know? So there are people who believe that, that's fine. That's their niche though, that's my point. In a market filled with hamburgers, they carved out a niche. Domino's, they started out, the way they made it so big is they only opened up in college towns, because there was a couple college kids who went, you know, kids in college studying, they, need, they order pizza. And they hired college kids, and they were in college towns where they were really close to the dorms, and they, you're going to get there in 30 minutes. They they didn't have a delivery area where they couldn't get there in 30 minutes. And then they put systems in place to ensure that, and that became their niche. Now, as they grew, they abandoned that. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And then, as I said, Amazon, we all know that, started selling. So his niche was he completely just created a new way of doing things, of delivering, getting new books at home, from this newfangled thing called the web. And he was a PA, uh, PhD, MBA, I can't remember where, he, where Jeff Bezos went to school, MBA, and he just thought, this is a great delivery model. So he came up with this. So these are three different ways of niching yourselves. These are all big companies. What about you guys, right? I mean, you, let's look at examples here. So Champion Risk Insurance, I know nobody in here knows this. Champion Risk is an insurance broker. They serve one market, one market only. They are in the moving business. If you are a moving company any place in this country, my guess is you know Mark Raby. He's the owner of Champion Risk. That's all they do. Workers' comp, general liability, and he knows moving as well as any mover I've ever met. And I was in the business for for a number of years. SD Tech. SD Tech was my first client. They're an IT service company. How many of you have IT service companies? They call them MSPs, managed service providers, who work, who who do your, you know, keep up your computers and your networks, right? In 2015, he had been in business for 10 years at that point. It was a half million dollar company, and he had a he had a mix of managed service people that he did on a retainer basis and break, fix, people paid time and material. He had been at $500,000 steady for about four years in a row, I hadn't grown an inch. We specialized him. He is now a commercial contracting technology expert. His company has more than doubled in size, more than doubled in size, and he did this by specializing in the things that, commercial, that are important to commercial contractors and his name is Scott, Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and his life has completely changed since we did that. Priority moving. This is the moving company I ran for a number of years. This is actually where it all started for me, because although we were a good-sized moving company in San Diego, we had to figure out how we were gonna differentiate ourselves from our competitors. So for us, what we decided was we weren't in the moving business. We were in the stress reduction business. What's one of the top three stresses in people's lives? Moving. Moving, new job, new family. And those always happen at the same time, right? Because you get engaged then you need a bigger house, then you gotta pay for the house, so you have to get a new job, right? So our, we figured out that our niche was reducing people's stress. We raised our prices and sold. We, did, we were a seven day a week operation, so 365 days in a year, we sold 365 more moves that year than the year before after raising our prices. When you specialize, you eliminate your competition because nobody else talked about that. And there's a lot of different ways to specialize and that's what we're gonna talk about today. Let's talk about one more way of specializing. Yeah, it used to be that skinny. Um, I wanna tell you a story from priority moving. Why I do what I do. This is important to understand. We'll come to how this relates to you in a second. So I got hired on a priority moving. I was hired as the vice president. And I was put in place there to help Brian, the owner, create an environment for growth. Growth is actually one of the five critical elements for creating safety and security in your team. And when your team feels safe and secure, they will stick with you longer. And how many people want to get rid of good people? You don't. You want them to stick around. So when a company is growing, they feel more secure, so he hired me to help him do that. So I started making changes in the company, and of course, how many of you, your company embraces changes easily? Anybody have people that just love change? Nobody? Of course not. We hate change. Right? We just keep doing We do it the way we've always done it. So I got a lot of pushback and resistance, and one of the guys I got pushback and resistance from is a gentleman named Carlos. Who was our estimator? Now Carlos has a ninth-grade education. Grew up in Barrio Logan, which, for those of you unfamiliar with San Diego, is not the greatest neighborhood in the world. He grew up with gunshots ringing in his ears at day and at night. He had been on the truck. This is before I got hired there, and by the time I got there, he had worked his way off the truck, and he was our estimator. He was making $15 an hour, and got paid $25 for every move he sold. Now we were doing high-end sales, even at this point. We were selling into Rancho Santa Fe, into La Jolla, if you're not familiar with those areas. um, uh, uh, Mitt Romney owns a house in La Jolla, just to give you an idea of the level of people we were servicing. That wasn't all our business, but that was a big part of our business, and Carlos was going out there selling to them, and I had to convince him to make some changes, and he was resistant to those changes, and it took me a year to get him to make those changes and finally he did. Well fast forward two years, the company got sold. I was president of the company when it got sold, and so as always happens, I was asked to move on to other opportunities, new ownership, wanted to take over. That's fine, that's their business, it's okay. Father's Day, after I left the company, I get a text from Carlos. Happy Father's Day, man. Nothing unusual about that, except for one thing. I don't have any children. I Text him back, dude, man, you know I don't have any kids. his response, I I, I still tear up when I think about it, his response was, you were like a father to me. I've always regretted that I don't have kids because I can't leave a legacy. I know it sounds egotistical, but right, we want to leave things better than we found them. And if we raise good children who are going to contribute to the world, I think that's the best thing we can do. And I wasn't uh, afforded that opportunity until Carlos. And I realized that providing great leadership Impacts a lot of people. Today, Carlos owns his own moving company. His son is in private school. He's doing fantastic. I talk to him regularly, okay? He's a great guy. I, my niche is helping people like that. What's yours? So you wanna figure out what your niche is. Oh, and by the way, just real fast, at the end of today, I wanna to talk about a leadership program that I'm offering. We'll talk about it then. It's not what this is here for. I'm not here up here to sell you. If you have any questions about it, you can see me afterwards, but there's a special leadership boot camp that I'll be talking about uh, briefly at the end of this. Why do you do what you do? We have to start here. If you're not clear on why you do what you do and what you love to do. So how many people love every single thing about your business? Raise your hand if you love everything about your business. Shocking. How many people love your business in general? Glad to see it. If your if your hand is if you don't truly love your business in general, and I, I don't mean this in a negative or bad way, but honestly, you might want to find a better um, breakout session because you're probably not going to get anything out of this. Okay, but what is it about your business you love? So this is group participation part of this. What is it about your business that you love? What do you love doing? Why are you in the painting business? Who wants people? What about people? Make their lives better. Make their lives better. How? Mentally, financially, spiritually. So, which people are we talking about? People that, that work for us. People that work for you, okay. So, you're in business to employ other people and make their lives better. Why the painting business, though? Right. You could do that in any business, right? It, it picked me. So I don't know. It picked you. But you stuck with it, right? Nobody put a gun to your head. How long ago how long have you been in the business? 45 years. So 45 years ago, gun laws were much, much less restrictive. So I'm sure somebody put a gun to your head and said, you're going to stay. spend the next 45 years in painting, aren't you? That's what my dad did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, you had the ability to say no. What is it about painting specifically that you love? You uh, have an end result. You can see what you've done. There's a feeling of accomplishment. It looked bad, now it looks good. Okay. So let's take this from another perspective. Why do people hire you? I'm going to take... So anybody know what this is? Money. What is money really? What is money? Money is nothing more than an IOU. It's an IOU for value given or received, however you want to look at it, right? right? So 5,000 years ago, civilization was forming. And I was a hunter. And this guy was a fantastic metal worker. So I needed spearheads. I'd say, I need some spearheads. He'd say, I need some meat. No problem. I got meat. You got spearheads. Let's trade. Right. Now I don't need any spearheads anymore. He still needs meat because he gave me plenty of spearheads. I don't lose them that often. But I need a place to keep all that meat I have. We have a great builder over here. He needs some other metal work, right? Because he needs hinges made. But he doesn't need a building. So what happens? He needs meat. He says, you give him meat, he'll give me what I need, or I'll give him what he needs, you, and we do this barter system, and I really messed that up, by the way, guys, in case you didn't catch that, right? But I do this barter system, right? And we can track it, because we're small villages, but now we can't track that. Now we have a global economy. So I can't say, oh, go to China to the, the, give the kid a nickel so he could build something for me, right? That doesn't work anymore. So we have this IOU thing called money and that's what money is. So we sell to people, businesses exist to bring value to others, right? And the value is greater than the money you charge for it where people wouldn't give it to you, right? You'd be foolish if if I think your service is worth $100 and you're charging me $200, I go, yeah, that's okay. If I'm willing to give you money, it means I think it's worth at least what you're charging me and probably more because most people want to get a deal. To you, the value you're getting in the cash, however form that money comes in, is worth more to you than the effort to supply the, your service or you won't take the deal either. Right. So it's a win-win situation. So what value are you giving to civilization? On Friday I'm going to be in Palm Desert talking to the Tire Industry Association. I get background music. Don't, have you ever wanted background music in your life where you know when the bad guys are coming? Um, So, I'll be talking to the tire industry association, and right, what are these? These guys build civilization. This is the off-the-road tires. These are the big seventeen thousand-pound tires that you know, those big massive earth movers. Right? They build civilization. What is it about painting that you do? What value do you give to the world? What is the purpose? Somebody, you've been doing this business forty-five years. I talked to somebody sixty years into. Put so we got life in the building. We got beauty, color, protection. Right. So you do a lot of things like that, right? You you either a protect, right? Because we're talking about um, corrosion control, or just even protecting not necessarily corrosion walls, keeping from getting marred. It looks good. If it looks good, people are more productive, right? Why is this place so beautiful here? Because we're more productive here, right? This just could be austere, you know. That's why I don't like modern architecture, it's austere, they don't feel good about it. Right? right? So you have a purpose you serve. Figure out what is it about how you serve others that gets you excited. Now, no, some of you may have similar, but many of you are going to be different. Once you understand what that is, then we're going to start to focus in on your niche because that's important. Like how many people here do industrial? Only a small section. Right? So industrial serves one purpose. Right? Industrial, it's a lot about protection. Right? Not as much, although there's an element of aesthetics. How many do residential? I had a feeling a lot more. Residential. What is it? Why do we hire you to paint homes? Maintain our values. Why don't I do it myself? Well, I'm, I can. Not as well as we can, which means the value won't be as good either, right? So if, if I see brush strokes or I got the missed spots, right? My cut in's a little sloppy and it gets onto the ceiling that's supposed to stay white, right? It's, it's okay if it's around the edges, right? It's sort of like a blending thing, right? It's a technique, isn't it? Right? It's a do it yourself technique at any rate, right? So you bring some extra value. Start to think about what is the value you bring, all right? Once you understand what you love about the business, now let's let's think about your customers. Because what we're looking for is the intersection of what you love about your business, what your secret sauce is, what is it that you do different than anybody else, and what your best customers are willing to pay for. Now, that secret sauce, your customers are actually gonna tell you what that should be. So we're gonna come about this the other way. We're gonna look at your customers. So I want you to think about this. Who are your best customers, right? We all have different types of customers. So my oldest client in my coaching business, I love these guys. It's a roofing contractor. Guys are salt of the earth. They care about their clients. They share the same values I share, which is customer service first, when your integrity is high. If I say I'm going to do something, it's going to get done. That's who they are. I've had people come to me, ask me to coach them, and what they ask of me is they go, you know, I just, can you help me with sales? Uh, how about the installation? Oh, this is a solar company I'm thinking of. I, I subcontract that, so I don't care about the installation, which means his service stinks. All he cares about is making that sale. It didn't take them on. He doesn't represent my values. What are your values? And then think about your customers that share those values. My guess is those are the ones you pick up the phone and answer. Right? So who are your top gross sales customers? Gross, not gross sales, gross profit customers. Why did I just distinguish between gross profit and gross sales? What's that? You're in it to make profit. You are, absolutely. Anybody think otherwise? So I don't have to do my whole, you're in a hobby if you're losing money thing, right? Hobby is what you pay to do. Right? If you're a professional, you get paid to do it. So if you're losing money, you're, you actually have a hobby, just FYI, right? But gross profit is what's left over after you do the job. Doesn't worry about your overhead, right? It's, it costs you X amount to do the job. I don't care about gross sales because that's not what you keep. You keep the gross profit. Of course, that goes to pay your overhead and all the rest of it. Who are your highest gross profit customers? Not necessarily. Not. No. So this is actually an exercise that when you get back to your office, every anybody not QuickBooks here, that'll be the easier way to ask this question. Okay. So I don't know how to do it if you're not QuickBooks, but if you are QuickBooks, I'm sure you could probably do the same thing. You can run a sales per customer report. Well, if they're in QuickBooks, whether it's repeat or not. Well, it depends from each customer. But, yeah, absolutely, you get higher value. But depending, if that repeat customer is a high-headache customer, you may not be, right? You could actually be losing money, and we'll talk about that in a second. In fact, let's talk about this right now. So, Anybody familiar with the Pareto principle? Yeah. Yeah. The 80-20 rule. That's exactly right. So uh, Vilfredo Pareto was a mathematician in uh, Italy, and he... uh, Notice that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the landholders. He thought, hmm, that's interesting. He went out to his garden and he discovered 80% of the peas yield came from 20% of his pods. And it's called the the law of the vital few. What it means for you is that, and I'm going to use 80-20, but it's not exactly 80-20. 80% of your profits probably come from 20% of your clients. Now, I've done this many times with clients. What I usually find is it's somewhere around 70, 30 is really common for for my customers. But think about it. You can get rid of 70% of your clients and only lose 30% of your gross profit. One more time, get rid of 70% of your clients and only lose 30% of your gross profit. How much less hard, right? You're working much more efficiently then. You have fewer headaches. So who are the top, what we want to do, who are your top five clients? Figure that out financially. I talked about this already. Who are the clients then that also share your value? So what I would do is turn around when you get back to your office, spend some time, and this takes a little bit of time, sort your clients by profitability. Then. Have check box going across with each of your core values. How many of you have core values, have value statements and core values? Now just a little aside here. For those of you who don't, I will challenge you that in fact you do. You just haven't written them down. But here's what's important about values. And Again, I talk about this in my book in leadership because values are just as important in leadership as they are in everything in business. Your values are how we make decisions. Values are our beliefs structured in the order in which we prioritize them. And so anybody here a publicly traded company? Anybody have a board of directors or shareholders outside of your family? Okay. So for everybody else, your personal values are your business values. I'm going to say that one more time. Your personal values are your business values. I don't care what you put on your web page. I don't care what you write and hang on a wall because when your personal value comes in conflict with that supposed stated business value, your personal value will win every time because that's what's truly important to you. For those of you who have business partners, it's a conglomeration of your collective partners. My guess is if you've been in business for a little while you probably have some shared values because otherwise it doesn't work. Every time I see partnerships, whether it's a partnership or LLC or whatever structure is, when you have more than one person who owns a company and if their values aren't in, are in conflict, it's like any other two people whose values are in conflict, conflict then occurs and a business breaks apart. So you probably have shared values there. And together, again, your conglomerate values are your business values. Your customers should share those same values because what happens when your customers share your values, they appreciate how you approach your business. Which means when that phone rings, when, that, when, that moving, uh, moving, when the roofing company calls me and that phone rings and it's Peter or Tony, even one of his people, I don't care, but I pick up that phone gladly because I know we have same values. So who has your high profit that shares your value and that you don't let the phone go to voicemail when they call. I heard a little chuckle there. I'm actually not trying to be funny here, although sometimes I'm accused of being funny when I'm not trying to be. But seriously, so SD Tech, the company we had had up there earlier, uh, as we were transitioning them to their niche, they had a client that was a flooring manufacturing company located out of San Diego. Um, They made bamboo floors, and they had a new IT guy uh, director. We were, uh, and and uh, let's just say he was unreasonable. And it got to the point where the phone would ring, and we'd see his caller ID, be like, "It's Chad. Let it go to voicemail. We'll figure out what he wants, and then we'll figure our approach because he's going to ask something unreasonable." Who has Chad as a customer? Why? I'm serious, why is Chad your customer? You are doing Chad a disservice. It got so bad, and this is no exaggeration, it got so bad that we started referring to other pain in the tail customers as chatting us. It became a verb. Let me tell you, you do not ever want to become a verb. Who is your Chad? Why do you have them as customers? So the 80-20 rule I talked about, it's true on the other side of the ledger. I promise you that 80% of your headaches come from 20% of your customers. A small portion of your customers are a large portion of your headaches. How much time do you waste with them? Let me ask a question. If you didn't have them as customers, how much more efficient would you be? Are you overstaffed to deal with them or would your staff be more productive without them? Well if we can identify where your niche is, we'll talk about that, you can actually avoid that. So we're going to finish this and we're going to be talking about the whole process. At the end of today you'll understand how to fire them successfully. All right, so once we've identified our top customers, what do we do next? So do we want more Chad's or do we want more of our favorite customers? Favorite customers. So now we want to go and figure out how do we cater to our favorite customers? Any ideas on how we do that? How do we figure out what our favorite customers want? I'm sorry, I heard it over here first. Somebody else said the same thing? Ask them. them. Take them out to lunch. Now, Let me tell you, what I'm about to describe sounds incredibly simple, amazingly simple. I will promise you it's not. And the reason it's not is your favorite customer, as much as they love you, don't want to give up the time but get them to lunch. Whatever you have to do, get them to lunch. The reason you wanna get them to lunch is you wanna ask them some really specific questions. Before you ask those questions, though, make sure you do what you should be doing each and every meeting with a customer or prospect. What is the first thing you do to start any meeting, frankly, with anybody, honestly, but especially with either potential clients or existing clients. Build Sorry? Build rapport. build rapport, who said that? You know, I should have chocolate, I could throw at him. Build rapport, he's 100% right. I talked to a couple of people here who said they were Sandler people, right? How many people are familiar with Sandler? Good, good, what's the first step in the submarine? Bonding and rapport. Anybody done any uh, Brian Tracy sales training? Bonding and rapport. Uh, Zig Ziglar sales training. Bonding and rapport. I don't care who's sales training. Bonding and rapport. Never start a conversation. Never start a meeting without at first developing rapport. Now, if they're existing customers, you probably know something about them. So start with a little small talk about the stuff you already know. How are things going? But then, before you transition to the stuff you really want to know, let's ask some important things about their business, such as, What are your future plans? What are your strategic plans for your business? What frustrates you about your industry? If there was one thing you could change about the painting, and I'm saying painting because you're my customer in this scenario, right? If there's one thing you could change about your business or your industry or tweak, what would it be? Competition. Competition. Now, I'm planting these seeds because I want people thinking about their business this way because they know their business better than the next series of questions. And the next series of questions are about your industry, right? But it's just like exercise, just like warming up, just like everything else we do, right? you got to get the muscles limbered, and you do the things that are familiar, and they're familiar with their industry. Now you transition. This is where where the magic is. You transition to your industry. Notice I didn't say your industry business, they like you, they respect you, they're doing business with you, and they want you to feel good because of that. And if I said to, what is your name? Matt, Matt you know, if I read, I, I do know how to read. If I read, I'd know that. So if Matt was my customer, and I said, Matt, tell me one thing about my business that frustrates you. What's Matt going to say? Oops, are you from Philly? Yeah. I grew up in Philly. About. I went to the North East, I went to the George Washington High School. Yeah, my homeboy. That's right. If there was one thing, Matt, about my business that you would change, what would it be? Now, what's Matt going to tell me? Nothing. Nothing. You're doing great. We love working with you. What good does that do me? Not a blessed thing. So I asked a question like this. I Matt, if there's one thing about the training industry that you would have changed, what would it be? It's not about me, it's about my industry. If there was one thing about the painting industry, you would change, what would it be? If there was one thing that upsets you or frustrates you with the painting industry, that's the second question, and it's not the same question, it's the same type of question, we're going to ask this a lot of different ways. Don't feel like, oh, I've just asked this question, I'm just saying it differently. That's right, you are. But people are going to hear it differently. What would you tweak about the painting industry? Do you want to answer that? Sure. Um, the legitimacy sometimes of it. What do you mean by that? Uh, there's a lot of guys who run their operations under the table as opposed to the rest of us that try to do it legitimately. Okay. Now... Have you done training like this before? No, not really. not really. Okay, who's done training like this before? Somebody I need a volunteer. Okay, gentlemen over here. If there's one thing you would change about the training industry or tweak, what would it be? because you are very astute of you, right? So it's one of the reasons you want to do the bonding and rapport, you want to ask them about their business. We didn't warm you up for this, right? But how about the fact that you get put on the spot? I bet you would train that, change that, wouldn't you? So that's really good input. That's really good input. So you ask this of at least your top five up to your top 10 customers. Don't go beyond 10 and you probably won't get 10. It's going to take you a year if you think 10 is the right number. It's going to take you six months to get sit-downs with five, minimum. But it's important that you do this. This is not something you're going to do overnight. But what you will find is there will be one or two things that you can actually do something about. It's the secret hidden things that your competition doesn't know because they won't ask the question, that you're able to answer and put a process in place to meet that answer that will differentiate you from every single body else. For example, you might discover that college students are hungry now when they're studying and they're broke. So they want it fast or they don't want to pay for it. And Domino's was born. Any questions on that? Any idea? Does, so, normally when I talk about this, people start thinking, I think I know what my industry wants. Yeah? Sure.
0: When a customer comes out to you and says, you know, I've changed uh, uh, X, Y, and Z in painting, and this is what I've changed. How fast do you implement? And do you go
1: back to that client and go, I changed it? Or,
0: you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a good question. So, first of all, you you,
1: the you don't necessarily make the change. You just Thank them for their input. You appreciate that. Because remember, we're not talking about reacting to one customer. This is important. This is not necessarily reacting to that one customer. What we're looking for is the common thread amongst your top five. The reason for that is you need a broader base. You don't know if that's a common problem. Once you understand that, what you're looking to achieve are three things that together make you unique your three differentiators any one of these things probably not unique maybe but it may not be that's okay it's the combination of all three that more than likely nobody else is going to do anybody know what this is Tur- turkey vulture how about this, that's a uh, zone-tailed hawk. Accomplished birders sometimes can't tell the difference at a glance, just like the public can't tell the difference of painting contractors at a glance. You could tell this is a turkey vulture right now because you can see the red head. But if you didn't see the red head because it's up in the sky, what you see is turkey vultures, they don't flap a lot, they have this, um, I think it's called dihedral wings, and uh, they, they soar, and they'll, they'll just use the thermals, and you see this. zone tail hawks are about the same size, very similar colorings, except for where these guys have this hairless red head so they can get their maw into carrion. And these guys are killer predators, and they don't need that. They have sharp beaks, but they fly the same way. And so you can't tell the difference until you start looking for the unique things, like the red head. like the banding on the tail, a little slightly different shape to the wings. So that's what I'm talking about, is finding those unique things. What What do I mean by that? Let's give you an example. SD Tech, the managed service provider I talked about, they are a commercial contracting specialist. Anybody in commercial here do a lot of construction? Is there a particular piece of software that you have to have? Bluebeam, for example, right? It's fairly ubiquitous in that industry. They're not Bluebeam experts. They are experts at making sure Bluebeam works properly on the network. So if you're having a problem with the software itself, like how to use it, that's not them. But they know how to tweak the network and how to troubleshoot it. And to their clients, even if they're having trouble with the software, they will call them and they will interface with Bluebeam just to make sure so the client doesn't have to play that game. What time does commercial construction normally start? Business is open, 7 a.m. What time do most IT companies start? 8, 9, I heard somebody say 10, I like that job, it's a banking thing, right? Scott's business is open at 7 a.m., we're open when you are. This is what I'm talking about. Find the things that your best customers in this interview are looking for and how do you solve the problems. You no longer become a painting contractor. Maybe you are, maybe you are a, I'm blanking on the words right now, a, a, a water treatment plant corrosion specialist. What do you do? You go in and paint the pipes in a water treatment plant. Some of you do that right now. But if I was a water treatment plant operator, and your business is what? Barco's painting. Barco's painting. painting, Or I was competing with high tech uh, corrosion control experts. I just got lucky. Rather be lucky than good. Who am I going to pick? The painter or the because corro- I'm concerned with corrosion, not paint. Figure out what your best clients want. And then figure out the processes to give it to them. So, we, for that, we need cre- written procedures. How many of you have written procedure manuals? Well, actually, let's go back. How many of you have procedures, the way you do things, and you want everybody to do it the same way? I think everybody, right? If you, you don't have any, any procedures? Not written, just procedures? Some of you had your hands down, no so you make it up every time you do it, it's, different. it's like, oh, this is the first time we've done this, we'll never do this before, right? No, you have a routine you go through, don't you? So that's an informal procedure. The problem with informal procedures is you get informal compliance. When you hire new people, you, depending on who, cha- who trains them, we'll train them on the way they informally do your procedures which means you get inconsistent results when you have written procedures you have consistency and if you're going to be a specialist an expert a corrosion control in this place expert right you better be consistently providing that corrosion control by the way when you have written procedures that people follow all the time, you think you're more or less profitable? More, why? That's exactly right. You have, you couldn't hear what he said. I could barely hear what he said. But you couldn't hear what he said. He said if you have processing control procedures in place, you also have the ability to evaluate what went wrong, where it went wrong, fix it right, and I'll throw one other thing at you. When I was at the moving company, we would then, after something happened, whenever something happened that was, I had to give money back to a client, we held what we called a cue board, quality board, where we review our processes with the crew involved to make sure they complied with them. Because sometimes what we found is that we set ourselves up for failure. Most of the time, it's a personnel issue. People weren't following procedure. And that's something you want to know as a leader and as a boss, right, because then you can deal with that, either mitigate it, correct it, or give them a career-enhancing opportunity elsewhere, right? But sometimes you set people up for failure, like we used to tell people you can never move live plants in in the pot, because pots are not made to be moved with dirt in there. There's a pressure outwards and with jostling on the truck, they're going to break. One time, though, these guys uh, moved nine potted plants. These were tall trees because the customer didn't know how to get it there, and we were very customer-focused, very customer-centric. And so they said, you know what? And we gave them some latitude to make these decisions. So they broke our procedure to take care of the customer because they knew the customer was the most important thing to us. So when we discovered that and their reasoning, we didn't fault them because there was no other way to do it given... And we changed our procedure, where we actually created a relationship with a company that moved plants as a specialty. So then we trained our salespeople, and this is all going to tie back into procedures. We then trained our salespeople to sell on that. Which meant as we're talking to them, well, oh, here's some beautiful plants, you got one, two, three, ten of those. Are you planning on moving those yourself? Well, no, that's what we're hiring you for. Now I can educate them. Well, the challenge with that is blah, 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 blah. You don't want them broken. Would you be interested to hear about a relationship with Joe's plant moving service? Absolutely. Any of my competitors do that? Heck no. Did that reduce the stress of how we're going to move these nine giant potted plants? Absolutely. And we became specialists. So procedures. Now, our businesses we think of as disparate silos, we have marketing, we have sales, we have operations, we have accounting, we have um, customer service, and then it's not up there, we have administration sort of overall whole thing. And We think of these as separate silos, but they're not. Your business is an ecosystem and each one supports the other. So the way you want to come about writing your procedures is write what I call the information flow, starting with marketing, right? So how. What's my procedure for getting the marketing done? Right? How do I come up with marketing ideas? You should have a procedure for everything. I mean, literally everything, how you answer the phone. Okay, and then how do I vet my marketing concepts? And then how do I place my marketing ads or whatever type of marketing I'm doing, my, my SEO or my, 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 my social? Now we get a lead, right? Because marketing is about generating leads. How do we turn that over to sales? What's that look like? What's that procedure? How do we make sure we don't, those are costly. Every one of those leads is costly. How do we get that to sales? How do we make sure sales tells the right story, which is, can, supports our marketing story and supports operations, how they're going to implement it so the customer is never disappointed? Now they close the deal. How do we get all the information the salesperson promised operations so they could fulfill that in the way the customer expects and we meet customer expectations? Customer service, what do they do? Do they understand what was sold and what was done so that they can address the issues if they come up with a customer? And then accounting, do they bill it right? Written procedures for everything. First, do they just do a diagram. Then go in and look who is responsible. What are they supposed to do? When are they supposed to do it? Where, right? Be a journalist. Where are they supposed to do it? Put it all down. Put it in a book. Once that's done, you now have the ability to hire new people because as you niche down, your business is going to grow and it's going to grow really profitably. As you get rid of your headaches, which we haven't gotten to yet, but as you get rid of your headaches and you're left with the the 20%, and you're actually replicating that 20% because that's our goal. Your business is gonna grow profitably. You wanna train new people up quickly so that they meet the expectations. So let's talk about marketing. We've now identified what our niche is. We've now identified what our specialty is. We are corrosion control specialists. How do we market to get more of those 20% clients that are really profitable for us. Any ideas? Bueller? Bueller? Keep in contact with them, them. but who do they know that knows more people like them? There are other vendors. So, during your interview, what other key vendors do you work with? So again, SD Tech, Managed service provider I was talking about earlier, I said they know how to support Bluebeam. Do you think other Bluebeam customers would appreciate what they bring to the table? Is that in their niche? Absolutely. Go to Bluebeam. Hey, you know we do a really good job making you look good because we create an environment where your software works flawlessly. Which of your other customers are having problems that we can help? you think Bluebeam wants to give that referral? Absolutely. Because that customer right now is the 20% that causes 80% of the headaches for them, right? And they'd rather convert them into the 20% that provide 80% of the profits. And my buddy, Scott, can help with that. So go to the vendors of your best customers and ask them for referrals and figure out how you can make help them. That's one of the secret sauce things. How do you help the vendors of your favorite customers? Because they will point you to more of the favorite customers. And that becomes a huge piece of your marketing because that's referral marketing. How many of you give referrals to other trades? How many of those referrals return into business for the person you refer? High percentage? Heck yeah. So why not be on the receiving end of that? When you niche down, it gives you the ability to do that because you become an expert and a specialist. Oh, by the way, the corrosion control guy, uh, the, the, the company that's hot looking at our John Doe plain vanilla, not after today, painting company, or a corrosion control specialist, am I worried about price? Not really, not really. The value of protecting that equipment is worth much more than the extra five or even possibly 10% more gross margin that you put on that job, right? Because the cost of failure is so great. I always like to, to urge people in whatever industry they're in, look for areas where the cost of failure far outweighs the extra money, which is why my friend is in the commercial contracting business. Because... A mid-size $10 million electrical contractor can lose $100,000 if their network's down for one day. $100,000. Cost, cost them about $5,000 a month for support. That's $60,000 a year. It's a no-brainer for these guys. No-brainer. So develop your, your processes and then train. How many people do training right now? How many of you have written training syllabuses? So put your hands up if you're doing training. Hold them up, hold them up. Now keep them up if you have written training syllabuses. For those of you who kept your hands up, great job. Why do I insist on written training syllabuses? Well, I got accountability. Accountability. uh, Training consistency. Well, One, somebody else? Objective An objective reference for everybody. An objective reference for everybody. So it's all of the above, and this is the order I like. One, you train people consistently, okay? Everybody knows the job. Now, to accountability, who said that? Just so i in here. To accountability, he fails to do the job right. Where a job goes wrong, and we have the cue board, the quality board I talked about, and he tells me he cut a corner. What excuse does he not have anymore? I didn't know. I didn't know any better. This is the way I was taught. I don't think so. We have this sign-off test that you took that showed you understood this and you actually did it. So I'll ask you a second time. Why did you cut the corner? Here's what happens when you do that. If they stick around, they're never going to do that again. Everybody understands that you are serious about your procedures. But there's one other thing that wasn't mentioned here, and by the way, what I'm about to mention needs to be a written procedure as well. This is the procedure that's always overlooked. It also gives you an opportunity to improve your procedures. Because sometimes you'll learn that your procedures set you up for failure. Then you develop a procedure for creating new procedures. Because you don't want one person doing it one way and everybody else doing it differently. If it's the better way to do it, then put it out to the whole company. And you have to create a culture where people understand if they think there's a better way, don't just do it, come to you and then do a test case. But from our perspective, you need to train your people because if you're making promises to your now niche clients that are rolling into your door because you're networking with the key vendors who are introducing you to other clients just like that, you better be able to make sure you deliver on that. All right. Once we've done all this, then we can afford to kick our headaches to the door. So what does that mean? Does that mean you pick up the phone and go, you stink? We're not working with you anymore? I get a head nod here. I know it feels really good. The problem with doing that, of course, as you all know, and I know you're not serious about that, is that the story that gets out will never be that they were a pain in the tail. So, let me come at this a different way. Do you treat all customers the same? Anybody think you should treat all, who thinks you need to treat all customers the same, regardless of who they are? Okay, who thinks you treat your best customers different? I got a really smart group here. You absolutely want to treat, it doesn't mean you don't treat people well, But one of your top five customers calls you up on the phone, yes. Whatever I'm doing, yes. This is your bread and butter. This is what makes you different. You promise them incredible service. Even if that's not in one of your differentiators, it's inherently stated. It's that they are going to be treated differently. Now, other people, doesn't mean that they don't want that. What I usually recommend doing is whatever extras. And when I say differently, by the way, I don't mean just pick up the phone right away. You give them services that you don't give others. I'm going to say that again. You give them services you don't give others. One of the companies that was up there, um, uh, Competitive Edge Insurance, is another one of my clients. They also, by the way, are in the contracting space. This is purely coincidental, I promise you. Or maybe not. Maybe it's because I have a niche in contracting, and so because I have this niche, I get um, introduced to other people in that space. Could that be working for me? If you don't have a certain amount of revenue, which really comes down to uh, premiums for her because it's proportional, then you pay for certain things that her top clients don't. For example, she will review your contracts to make sure there are no unreasonable insurance requirements in them. Now, some of you may be going, what are you talking about? But others have probably read through those contracts from generals and they go, like, they'll ask for things that are actually illegal because a lawyer wrote the contract, not an insurance specialist, and they want you to modify things in the accord or, or put verbiage in there which would actually invalidate your insurance contract. Or worse still, They ask for requirements, let's say minimum coverages and general liability that not only do you not have, but it's going to cost you extra to get. And if you get that contract and you didn't build that into your bid, you didn't make the margins you thought you were going to make. So is this valuable to people? Absolutely. So she has a fee for doing that for people who are not her key customers. So she'll do it, absolutely. But if you are making a minimum amount of a of, uh, of, of number of, it's not a number of lines, a number of, of uh, premiums, so that means her uh, commission annual is a certain number or above, that's baked in for her because she wants more of you. What can you do for your top clients that bring that extra value? That you could also, by the way, upsell your medium clients and they will appreciate and see the value in that. To your bottom feeders, just start price. learn to say no by saying yes. Start pricing them out. I'll say it again, start pricing them out. Just start raising their price. You don't have to charge the same pricing unless you're constrained by law, and I don't think any state that I know of you have to do that, right? That 30% margin becomes a 40% margin, right? What I, what I tell my clients all the time is, price it so that if they say yes, you do this, if you price it and you think, imagine this for a second, go like, okay, they said yes. Damn it, I didn't want them to say yes. You didn't price it high enough. I am not joking, actually. You want, when they say yes, you're going, all right, for that money, heck yeah. I'll put up with their stuff. PETA? Pain in the Aztecs, yep, pain in the Aztecs. Get rid of them. This, with Scott, SD Tech, this wasn't fully in place yet, meaning my process here wasn't fully developed. We did this first. We got rid of his break-fix clients the, in three months of him hiring me. He lost 5% in revenue that year. Lost 5% in revenue. That sucks, doesn't it? Only problem is his net, net, net operating profit, not gross profit, but that bottom line that you actually keep. Grew 400%. Way. Wow. Well, yeah. Okay. You really don't want to do it in that order because it can't guarantee your results. But that's what happened in his case. All right. Oops, wrong button. Any questions for me? Nothing? Yes. Can you ask it? Sure. Will you get a good answer, which I think is the implicit question you're asking? Depends on your level of rapport. Really depends on your level of rapport. How much they trust you. So I, mean, I remember one of my first sales uh, when I was in telecom, uh, Without going into a long, boring story on this. Well, I don't think any of my stories are boring, but my wife will disagree. Um, thank you. One of my very early sales was a retired Navy chief, and we spent 45 minutes just BSing about the Navy. I spent the next 15 minutes selling him the phone system. I knew before I even started selling him the phone system he was going to buy from me, right, because that trust was there. So if you have that level of rapport, sure. And it's not a bad sales question to ask anyway, right, because maybe you do something different and you want to uncover that, I don't want to go too far into the sales process here, but right in sales, we want to know what their sub-thinking, subconscious thinking is, right? We want to know what those objections are going to be before they ask them, and that's a great way to ask that, right? I mean, because then you may uncover something that you can then speak to that your competition won't. So sure, no reason not to. But you don't know if they are one of your best customers yet, and that's why it's not as powerful. You want to find that 20% that do 80% because you want more like them. Yeah? How do we attract customers that are not concerned with price? I just told you how. We just spent the last 45 minutes talking about that. <laughs> okay? So price. What is a price? Okay, I'm going to move into sales for a second since these are questions that are coming up. When somebody is concerned with price, what are they really telling you? I'm sorry? You haven't created value. People give you money because they think what they're getting is worth more than the money they're handing you, right? It's IOU for for value received. If they're talking to you about price, it's one of two things. It's either A, cultural, and I'll talk about that in a second, or B, you haven't created enough value. So here's how I deal with the price objection, by the way. And usually it comes how? It's usually, it's usually not, can you lower the price? It's usually so-and-so, right, because they're smart. We're going to play you against your competitor. They're going to say, your competitor is going to do it for this much money, right? That's how it usually comes up. What can you do? That's typically, how. Not, not all the time. What's your name? I'm sorry. Brad. Brad, let me ask you a question. I'm not saying I can match my competitor's price. I, I, you know, I mean, i take a look at that. But in fact, I probably can't, but let's assume for a second I can Why the heck would you do business with me if I could? Our our market here in Phoenix, or at least in in my niche, is we're going to get three bids and the lowest bid's going to get. There's not a qualification necessarily. There's not a written scope. So the goal is to be the, the, the low guy. Okay. I would get out of that niche. If that is in fact... If that is in fact not just your perception, but the reality of the niche you're in, which is what? Commercial repaints. Commercial repaints. Then you're in a commodity business, right? So I assume what you're talking about is like uh, um, uh, TIs where you're just respraying white all over an empty shell. Could be, could be this hotel, the outside of the hotel. Okay. So in a place like this, appearance is everything. They're not gonna hire me. I could, get, I, mean, I, I could get paint on the wall. I'll be cheaper than you, I promise. But they are not gonna hire me. It's not about price, it's about value. You gotta get them to recognize that, okay? But that's the tough part about right in the bid world. But if it's not government, you still have the chance of creating relationships. Right? But the reason we do this whole thing, Right? It's not necessarily so you say I'm going to stay in my niche, how do you define your own? What is it that are important to hotels that you may not know about? So let's take that moving company. When that moving company started, Brian, the owner, who didn't come from moving, he was a serial entrepreneur, just thought this was going to be an easy business. I mean, how hard is it to pick stuff up, move it, from put it in a truck? then pick it up again and put it in a house, right? It's a pretty simple business, and it is a pretty simple business. The way he marketed his business is he went to um, commercial property managers of large complexes, and he asked them what it was that was important to them about the moving companies who were on their property, and what do you think they were concerned with? Not being in the way, protecting their property. That's a massive investment for these people. Massive investment. Some of you work on those properties, right, and paint them, right? So, massive investment. Brian put in things in place that other movers said they were going to do, but that we did. We had all this high-tech special padding for door frames and for walkways. And we had an SOP where every carpet got covered with carpet runners, not just cheap stuff, but really good stuff. He bought the best of everything. And then he talked about that to them. And guess what? We had this huge quantity of commercial property managers who only referred us. Sometimes they would do move-in specials. They would pay for four hours of the move. So we didn't discount, and we weren't cheap. But we found that extra bit of value. I don't know your industry, whatever that extra value is. If they're talking about price, or talking about value, and you haven't built it in. One more question. So what what Mark, now I can read. What Mark is saying is that he got out of that business because they were looking for low value stuff. They were were only doing a single coat. They weren't looking at a 20 or 30 year system. They just wanted to get it done cheap. And so he found a different market where they valued the long term system which is also I imagine a higher gross profit system, right? So my roofing contractor does the Hotel Dell, right? Did it for many, 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 many years. It was a great contract. Very, as if you've been there, you very steep roofs, very technical roofing job. Got bought by a Chinese, I think it's Chinese company, an overseas company now. Now they've turned into that niche. They're not in there anymore. They didn't drop their drawers. Forgive, you don't want to see me with drop drawers, I know. They, they, didn't, they didn't drop their drawers to keep the business because the Hotel Dell is a signature thing. They said, you know what? I don't care if it's a million dollars a year. That's what we're talking about. It's not profitable for us. By the way, the Hotel Dell is constantly calling them and using them for repair work because the contractors doing the work are clowns. Maintain your integrity. All right, we've got to wrap this up. I wanted to talk to you about something here. So if you're going to implement this, you need to be a leader. This is my passion, Leadership. I love helping companies, but a companies without good leaders aren't going to thrive. And so this is inaugural. I, I wish I had more stuff for you, but we are doing a leadership boot camp in Joshua Tree Park. We take you out two days camping. So we start out first night in a hotel, hotels included in this. Fly into San Diego, that's on you. Put you up in a hotel, we'll pick you up in a coach bus, we'll take you out to Joshua Tree. we are gonna go camping. We're going to do some survival training, nothing arduous, I promise you, not like what I had to do when I was in SEER school, but we're going to teach you sort of the basics of survival in the wilderness, and we're going to tie that into leadership, because leadership is about survival. We choose leaders who help us survive. In business, that means we want people who are going to make sure that we can keep our jobs and help us thrive in our jobs. We're going to tie that all in together in a three-day workshop boot camp. that involves team building. We're going to... Do some rock climbing if you want. You don't have to be in great shape for this. We have activities regardless, but if you want to get up on the rock, you can do it. I don't care what your current condition is, we'll help you, we'll make sure you do that. And in it, you're going to get some phenomenal leadership lessons. It's uh, Friday, May 1st through Sunday the 3rd. It's just before Joshua Tree, they turn the ovens on. They turn the ovens on the following weekend. And if you've never been to Joshua Tree, it's absolutely gorgeous. We only have room for 12. And this is no BS. You are actually the first group I am presenting it to. Okay? So you could potentially fill me up today, which would not break my heart. But at any rate, it's $3,000. It's inclusive. Everything except for your airfare. Right, We'll be done Sunday afternoon, so we get you back to the airport uh, Sunday in time to catch a flight out. Obviously, if you Need to stay, spend Sunday night, that's on you. If you do pay for four, we'll throw in the fifth one. So 12000 what's that? May 1st through the 3rd, okay? And I don't care if that's all the same company, right? So if your company is one or two people that you want to bring, but you are friends with other people here, or you're not friends with anybody here, but you wanna become quickly because you wanna share, I don't care, I really don't care, okay? Pay for four, get five. <clears throat> if you're interested, come and see me. Otherwise, my other little shameless plug, brand new book just published last month, Locked On Leadership, really goes in depth. This is the primer. If you, uh, if you decide to join me in Joshua Tree, you'll get this as, a co- as, a, as, a, as part of this. Otherwise, available on Amazon.